Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today as we continue our look at the Gospel of Matthew. Yesterday we talked about uh, issues regarding the authorship and the dating of Matthew and a little bit about who was this Matthew, uh, the tax collector that I believe wrote the book. I mean, you're free to decide I'm wrong (laughs) and believe that somebody else wrote the book. It doesn't change anything ultimately at the end of the day, whether you believe that or not. But, But I believe there's good reason to believe that Matthew was the author because he had always been credited as the author of the book going way back in time. There was never a time when it circulated without his imprimatur. as it were. So want to continue to look at some things related to Matthew. Who was he? You know, he was this tax collector guy who would have been hated by everybody else when Jesus calls him, brings him into the apostolic group. Then it certainly has the potential for breaking everything to pieces, because why would he call a tax collector, of all people, one of the outcast members of society to be part of the group? And then that would, the internal dynamics would have been difficult, and and looking at it from from the outside, it would certainly have seemed an odd kind of a thing for him to do, to bring this tax collector in. But Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. And so the, the bringing of Matthew in, then also at the same time, while it creates this potential for internal division, it does something else. It, it shows something about what Jesus is doing and what he's about. He's not coming calling Pharisees or Sadducees or any of those people. No, he's coming and he's calling people to be his disciples. And so he he goes outside of everybody's comfort zone when he calls Matthew. Before that, he's called these Galileans who were fishermen and and friends of those same guys. And the the thing they had in common was that that they were Galilean, and they were clearly people who were looking for the coming of the Messiah. And so then he calls Matthew, who seems to be doing nothing more than sitting at his customs desk. But when Jesus calls him, Matthew responds in exactly the same way that the Galilean fishermen and others had responded. And that is he immediately left what he was doing and followed after Jesus. So he's pulling together a disparate group of people. It hadn't been a disparate group until he called Matthew. It had been a fairly homogenous group of guys who knew one another who had been following probably John the Baptist, and who had certainly together been searching and believing for the coming of Messiah. And then he calls Matthew. And so what, what it, it did was it shook things up, because suddenly we got an outsider, and not only an outsider, but a tax collector, who has come into our midst. And then, like I said, from the external point of view, the Pharisees question immediately, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? It puts him in the wrong company. But these people, they're probably Jews that, that Matthew has called to, to be among them. So Matthew, um, he has the potential to break the group up, but if they remain coherent, if they continue to trust Jesus and trust his discernment, then what we're going to end up with is a much broader group of people being brought into this. And then he does. He continues to expand it. He calls a zealot. He calls you know Simon the zealot. He calls uh, um, also Judas into the group. And I wonder if at the end of um, the gospel, whenever Jesus predicts one at the table with him is going to betray him, I wonder if they thought very much about that. And I think it is a little bit odd when you think about it that Matthew was a tax collector, and yet here, what do we learn at the Last Supper? We learn that Judas was the one who actually carried the purse, not the tax collector. 
um, because he would have been distrusted from the beginning, Matthew would have, with, with regards to money. And so the person most equipped <laughs> to, to be the one who was the treasurer for the group is the one who, by virtue or, or whatever the opposite of that would be, uh, of his profession and the feeling about his profession is the one who can't handle the purse because he would have been the one least trusted to handle the money correctly. And so instead it goes to one Judas who mishandles the money and and proves that he can't be trusted. But Jesus knew this from the beginning. But I wonder if at the end did they think that Matthew was the one because he was the one least like all the others, and then he becomes the one who writes this gospel. It's, it's this wonderful, redemptive story of Matthew. And then, and then you begin to say, okay, what happened to Matthew after? And as I said last time, the, the belief among almost everybody is, is that this was written in Antioch, which was the scene of the site of the first real Christian community outside the land, and it would have been composed primarily of Jews, um, that, that region was filled with Jewish people, a lot of Jewish exiles in that area. So it it was written for that community and to that community in many ways in order to encourage them. And we know that because Matthew, again and again and again, far more than any other gospel writer, quotes Old Testament um, scriptures, and in particular prophecies that Jesus fulfilled uh, as he goes about the narrative of, of Jesus, beginning with the very birth of Jesus. Um, everything in in Matthew 2 is going to be sourced back to the Old Testament. This happened in order that it might fulfill this. And so you're going to see that again and again in Matthew in a way that the other gospel writers don't. Um, he's not going to give us some of the details that, that the other gospel writers give us, largely because he's talking about to a specific community and encouraging that, in, encouraging that community uh, in their faith and belief in Jesus as the Messiah against the broader Jewish community who's going to say, no, he's not. That's exactly wrong. And Matthew's point is to prove that Jesus was indeed the the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament. So he, he's speaking primarily to a group of Jews when he, when he tells this. It doesn't mean that they're the only ones that it applies to, but but they're the primary audience for Matthew, and so then what becomes of Matthew, let's assume that he does go to Antioch for some period of time. We know that at one point Barnabas has to go get Paul to, to instruct and build up the community in Antioch, so we, we've got to assume then that Matthew's no longer there if he was there to start with. So he's probably not there anymore, so where does he go? Well, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> we actually have no idea what happened to Matthew. There are a lot of legends and a lot of ideas that he was in Ethiopia or in Syria or Macedonia or all these other places, and that he was martyred in one of those places. And there's a variety of suggestions for exactly how he died, including there's one that says he just died of natural causes like John. The church has for a long time, however, celebrated Matthew as a martyr. The reality is we don't know. We do not know what happened to Matthew. We have no earthly idea. There are no records. There's only um, legends, really, that, about what happened to Matthew. Um, I, I would think that that we could probably um, say that he was martyred because there's longstanding tradition in the church that the apostles other than John all died um, prior to when they would have ordinarily have naturally died. 
So I think we can look at it that way and, and kind of say, okay, I, I think he was probably martyred, but I have no earthly idea, to be honest with you. Um, but it seems likely to me that that was probably the way Matthew died. Um, pretty much nobody accepts the one testimony that he was, uh, that he died of natural causes. Pretty much nobody, no scholars or anybody, anybody accepts that idea. So why, though, would Matthew have been the one to have been so absorbed with these questions of um, fulfillment of Jewish scriptures when he himself would have been estranged from temple Judaism and rabbinic Judaism? He, he would have been somebody who would have been looked down upon. He wouldn't have been able to come to the temple. He wouldn't have been able to go to the synagogues in many cases because of his profession and the presumption that, that he handled dirty money. And so, therefore, he would have been an outcast among Jews. So why would he, of all people, have written that particular gospel? And and it's because probably he made a more thorough search than anybody else because he would have been that kind of meticulous guy that he would want to have convinced himself first. So he, he probably wrote the gospel primarily for himself to put into writing all the things that he had learned in studying Scripture and and measuring that against Jesus. So it's probable that that's the way that the gospel even first began. It began by gospeling him, Matthew, and making him secure in his faith that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament. He would have been somebody who would have been more interested in that very issue. It's not that he lacked faith. No, he was a guy who was accustomed to accounting for things and making sure things were right in a way that everybody else really wasn't. He he is far more scrupulous about these things, except when when you look at the very first chapter, when you're looking at his genealogy, and you see that he says there's three generations, or not three generations, there are three sets of 14 generations, and then you realize, well, wait a minute, that last generation, that last set of generations only has 13 in it, and then some of these things don't match up right. There there are some some generations that are skipped, uh, in, in spite of the fact that it says 14, there's actually, well, you skipped a few generations here, but it's interesting because the genealogies that we find in the Old Testament, as well as the genealogies in the New Testament, aren't there for that numerical accuracy. They're, they're saying something, they're making theological statements primarily. They're, they're making sure there's, what, what we're saying is there's continuity. And then Matthew would have been particularly interested in these 14s because that number would have been a a very important number in Judaism. It would be the numerical equivalent of David's name because every Jewish letter has a numeric value attached to it. And so David itself would would have been the numeric value of that would be 14. And so there are other things like this where that 14 number was an important number. Seven, we know, is an important number. So if you double seven, it's an even more important number. And then when you go to six— which would be 3 by 14, right? So that's 7 by 6, then, then that's really important. But then the fulfillment of that would be 49 and 50. So Jesus takes us into that new realm where all things are fulfilled and all things are being perfected because he is that next seven of sevens that would be there. And so, so he's not scrupulous in, in those numbers. And what's interesting is you get guys like Bart Ehrman, for instance, who just can't stand the guy. He is a, a scholar, 
of uh, because he has a title that makes him a scholar. He has a degree that that says that he's a scholar, but but he'll say, see, this is utterly wrong because Matthew doesn't have the right genealogy here. Therefore, um, we have to reject it, as though he Bart Ehrman, born a couple thousand years after Jesus. Um, were the first person to actually notice that. It's far more likely that that there's not an error in this. It's far more likely there's something I don't understand than that. You're not the first person who counted the generations in Matthew. You're not the first person who noticed that he skipped some people here and there. No, that, that, that's hubris and arrogance at an incredible level, right? Because it, it should be, I, I humbly come to this knowing that I'm 2,000 years later, and, and I'm probably not the first guy who counted this. I'll bet you there, there's a better explanation than this is just wrong. So I, I'm going to reject guys like Bart Ehrman because that just, the argument makes no sense. It's just based in his own arrogance. It's not based in anything else. Um, so, so I want to get that little piece of housekeeping out of the way right away before we begin to talk about the genealogy of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us is exactly for one reason. It's to prove that he is the Jewish Messiah. And we know that because that's exactly how he begins the book. He says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, there are reasons very good reasons why he says it that way. Now, the first thing I want you to understand is Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's better said Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. The The word um, Christos means the smeared one, actually. It would be like smearing somebody with, with uh, anointing oil in order that they would be set apart for a given task. And so he is Jesus Christos. So he is Jesus the Christ. And, and so it, it can become, for us, a stumbling block because we're not seeing the important thing. The kings, priests, those kind of people, those were anointed people. So Jesus was the Christ in the sense that he was the anointed one. And what was he anointed for? He was anointed to be the Messiah. He was anointed to be the prophet, priest, and king par excellence. He's the exemplar of all three of those things, prophet, priest, and king. And so he is the anointed one of God to serve in that role. Think about Samuel when when he first goes because he sees something in Saul, he anoints Saul to be the king, and then he goes to the family of uh, Jesse in Bethlehem, and he sees the boys that that Jesse brings forward, and they're all good-looking guys, big strapping guys, and and he wants to anoint them, assuming that, yep, these are the guys likely to be the leaders. And God keeps saying no. And finally, they bring David in. And what does he do? He anoints him because God says, this is the one. And so that anointing means a setting apart for a specific role. Well, Jesus had multiple roles. He was Messiah, but he was prophet, priest, and king. And so in order to be those things, he first has to be the son of Abraham. He has to be in the Jewish line. Right? So it's impossible for the Jewish Messiah to be from outside of Judaism. So it has to go back to Abraham. Luke, in his genealogy, is going to take him all the way back to Adam. But in doing so, he traces right through Abraham to get there. But, but that's not even interesting for Matthew. Matthew wants you to believe and wants you to see, as he does, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he gets him back to Abraham as the founder of the Jewish people. 
as the patriarch from whom all the others come. So he gets him back to Abraham and then points forward from Abraham then to a midpoint, and that midpoint is David. Why does he point him to that midpoint of David? Because that's exactly how he begins, except for he begins in the opposite order. He goes backwards in time and says, from today to he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. And then when he gives the genealogy, he starts with Abraham because he's working himself backwards to prove two different things. The first thing is, is that he is the son of Abraham. That means he is Jewish. That part is established. And then the second thing that has to be established in order for him to be the Messiah is he has to be of the line of David. Why does he have to be of the line of David? Because to be the king, you've got to be of the line of David, period, end of sentence. To be the messianic king, you have to be of the line of David because God promised David that he would never lack one to sit upon his throne. So you have to be of the line of David. So that's why he gives us those two very important points, and then he points to another point in time, because you get from Abraham to David, and then from David, not up to the time of Jesus. No, he gives us another waypoint, and that other waypoint is the time when they're taken into exile in Babylon. And then from that point forward, why is that? Well, because now we're going to bring in the prophets. We're going to bring in all of that, because now we're going to see the end of the Davidic line of kings in the taking away and the going into Babylon, and then we're going to go into that intertestamental period all the way up to the birth of Jesus. So he, he is connecting him with the patriarchs, the kingly line, and also the prophets by dividing it into those three great subdivisions, and then brings it up to the present day. There's a lot of names in that last piece of the genealogy that, that nobody really knows who in the world these people are. Because the, the, it wasn't any longer, you're not tracking kingly lines any longer. You're, you're not tracking any of those lines. However, the other thing that you need to understand is how important genealogy is and was in Judaism prior to the fall of the temple. They kept strict records in the same way that Mormons do. They kept strict records of genealogy. And so it was easy always to go and prove whether or not somebody was a Jew by birth or not, and by birth mattered a great deal. So it, it became the issue that you had to prove these things, and so the genealogy that Matthew would have relied upon to get those names would have been lost to us in history because of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So Matthew clearly had access to that information somehow or another, whether it was from temple records or whether it was from somebody else, I don't know, but at any rate, Matthew gives us a, a set of names that we can't account for. So he had access to information that we no longer have available to us, and these names weren't important, but they do one thing. They connect us all back to David. He gets us in the line of David and then all the way back to Abraham because he's pointing out specifically that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And in order to be the Jewish Messiah, he has to be two things. He has to be in the line of Abraham. He has to be a child of Abraham. And then he also has to be in the Davidic line, in David's line. And so in both those things, we see that being true. And then in, we, we look, if we need further attestation, about whether he's from the line of David, which would absolutely say that he's in the line of Abraham, is, is when we look at Luke's gospel and we're told why 
he was particularly born in Bethlehem is because they had to go back to Bethlehem because there was a census, a Roman census being taken that required everybody to go back to their homeland. And so the homeland for people in Judah would be in the city of David in Bethlehem. And so Jesus' family has to go there because David is their ancestor in order to be enrolled in the census. So we, we get verification from Luke's gospel when he tells us why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he is also of David's line. Those are the important things. We'll begin tomorrow looking at the genealogy itself. We're going to focus on some specific names in there, and, and Matthew does some interesting things. He gives us five different women in um in that genealogy, and it's odd, the ones he absolutely chooses and puts right in the middle of this to confront us, because all of these tell us that, that Je- like Matthew himself, that Jesus is the Messiah for all people, not just the Pharisees, not just the Sadducees, not just these, these uh, righteous ones. No, he, he is the Savior of all and the Messiah for all, whether they're inside the covenant community or outside the covenant community, doesn't make any difference. He brings them all into one community, whatever the, whatever the background is and whatever their past might be. And Matthew can relate to that probably more clearly than any of the other gospel writers.